everyone, welcome back to the left page! I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, researcher, writer, podcaster, lots of different things. And I am here today with uh, an incredible guest to do almost a sort of second part, or a continuing part, to a discussion we've had some time ago on Ursula K. Le Guin. I am joined today by the incredible Pearson Bolt from Coffee with Comrades. Welcome. What's up, Frank? I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad that we can uh, continue collaborating and talking about Ursula K. Le Guin and talking about literature. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Left Page, and uh, I'm excited to uh, to chat with you today. It's gonna be a gonna be a fun conversation. Exactly. Like it's. Uh... It's the second part, or it's a continuing part, because, you know, there's more Ursula Le Guin out there, so, you know. Indeed. <laughs> One of these days, we'll have to circle back and do, like, another book in the Hainish Cycle, or do, like, The Wizard of Earthsea or some shit. That would be fun. I'll just be your, like, resident, like, Ursula K. Le Guin stan. <laughs> I mean, you did bring her to light for me, and I am literally doing my, or planning to do my master's on her, on her work, so, and on the oh, Dispossessed. Nice. that's awesome. So. As yes. we uh, as we talk, I'm actually well, not like I'm not literally writing right now while we're recording this podcast. But as we record this podcast, <laughs> I'm working on my my dissertation, and the first chapter of it is um is on Ursula K. Le Guin uh, and and specifically on the dispossessed. So Ooh. I'm definitely thinking about all this stuff. It's all bubbling around in my noggin. Oh, that's fantastic! Oh, happy about that. Yeah, for sure. Last time we spoke about uh, Dispossessed, and this time we are with The Left Hand of Darkness, which is another incredible book. It's it's effectively later in the Hainish cycle in just the way the, the plot is structured and that overarching narrative, which we only get a few snippets of uh, in various books. But it is written earlier, actually, if... The Dispossessed is from 1974, and The Left Hand of Darkness is from 1969, and it's... Nice. Oh, exactly. (laughs) And it's just (laughs) such an incredible... It's an interest. it's a really great experiment, the, The Left Hand of Darkness, and I think with its limitations and what it's doing, it's quite fun, and... We're going to get into what it effectively does, the whole experiment with gender and uh, um, a sort of androgynous and bi-gender identity species or humanoid species. But there's a a whole discussion of how Le Guin herself understood the text and reflections on it in time afterwards. So there's definitely a lot on just this one point, but hopefully we'll also be able to to touch on a lot of different things. To give like a brief sort of plot summary to get us started, it is the story of Genli AI, or Genli, I 
I don't know. I had a, <laughs> with various sci-fi things. I always have certain difficulty pronouncing things because in my head they sound something. When you say them aloud, they mean something else. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. When I uh, when I taught this uh, book with my students, they had a similar. They're like, "Is it Gimli AI? Is he an AI? Is he a robot?" And I was like, "All right. I think it's just the stylization of his name. <laughs> I don't think we need to like read that far into it, y'all." Uh, I've always called him Gidley I, but like, you know, it, I think it works either way. There's, um, unless Ursula K. Le Guin like explicitly said otherwise, or we can find like a, uh, a, you know, like an iteration of her, of her reading it aloud. I'm not sure if there is like, uh, you know, ever, ever a definitive translation <laughs> or pronunciation um, for characters. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Yeah, no, me neither. Just uh, one of those fun things, especially because I read in Portuguese, yeah, sure. which was fun. <laughs> oh, did you read the like you read the translation? Yes, in a beautiful cover. Like people can't see it, but it'll be on like the the Twitter publication, which is just a beautiful cover. Wow, that is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, I I will show you the dispossessed later because it's in another room, but it is oh, it's the same sort of art style. And it's really good. Like hardcover, nice. Yeah, edition. it's got that like, uh, like, like that sort of neo-futurist kind of aesthetic, which I think makes a lot of sense. I, like, I'd be pressed to give a clear like, oh, this is the what the cover is actually presenting, but you know, it's good looking, right. it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my cover is much more bland. It's just the like, like frozen giant face, which is like fine <laughs> but like it's not as uh it's definitely not as eye-catching or visually arresting as yours i'm 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 a little bit jealous frank if i'm being honest i know you're not <laughs> supposed to judge a book by its cover but let's be honest we all judge books by their covers naturally and that's a mighty fine cover you got there oh yeah and i think it's good because uh, one of the big things about the research i'm doing well it's sort of in the back of my mind because to actually do that sort of understanding and idea is uh bit harder to prove or go after but there's well Le Guin has been translated into Portuguese since the 70s there's been virtually mm-hmm. or effectively no critical or any reception at all so interesting yeah I, I'm like boggled because like Dispossessed for example 74 in 75 I found an edition and subsequent editions in like 78 I think or 80 something so there were others but no one talked about them, and I found no other work on it, on it, barely on her. Right, so it must have been selling. People must have been reading it, but nobody was like actually like doing scholarship on it. That's so fascinating. I wonder, I wonder why it flew under the radar for so long. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's and the more I I read into like the the reception of her, I'm like, there's been a lot of work in, in the US, in the UK, like even in Australia. Sci-fi on Le Guin, on utopias and dystopias, so like, that's just not been as much a thing here or at all. So yeah, it's fun. Right. It's fun to be able to like, because that's the point of what I'm doing, building that sort of bridge, which is great. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we fought in the Left Hand of Darkness. We have the story of Genli AI, Genli AI or Genli AI. I'll probably switch between the different pronunciations, which is fine. As he arrives in the planet of Gethin, or Winter, as a sort of emissary of the Ecumen, which is... We'll get into what it is, what it tries to do, and how we can think about it later, but 
it's a sort of well uh, like a space you win kind of thing but it does a lot more it's this sort of cultural spiritual political conglomerate of planets and things and it in order to sort of expand and incorporate other planets and peoples and cultures into it it sends its emissaries it has an initial one person incognito scouting force really um to sort of oh this is the planet these are some of the cultural or biological and even like geographical sense of the planet and the people and then there's a a one man emissary who announces themselves and presents as like oh this is what I'm here to do and try to build this connection as best as they can or fail to do so and it's in a way this journey of this outsider in these like larger realms so to speak and how he interacts with the people and has a similarly to the dispossessed a sort of circular journey and how there's a it, it, it's similar to that utopian narrative of like the outsider going into the utopia and how he relates to it the connections the ideas the differences and how that's different to his world in this case it's not utopian at all but it follows that similar structure which allows for a lot of different world building and it's just really interesting and the main focus of like the experiment while there are a lot of different things at play is the main one of gender where like you have these ambisexual human beings who are about most of the time they are androgynous with no real sexual differentiation i believe that's right yeah and then it's like 3 days out of the lunar cycle they will manifest either uh like male se- like male sex or female sex organs and uh have the ability to to procreate and and they enter into like a um like essentially like they enter into heat <laughs> like yes. you know like they can't they can't they can't uh have sex without being you know uh in this particular period in time and so like uh basically like all work stops and they just all fuck each other <laughs> which is quite a fun image to be honest it's like hmm when you when you need to you go for it yeah Fine. you know i mean hey if you got to you got you got to go you got to go <laughs> and well the the main thing is that like the outside is just a human man and how he relates and how he talks about it i'm always interested in like the meta text of like the if the book we're reading is uh it exists in universe and in this case it does it's sort of it's in full uh genly eyes sort of testimonial report of how he spent how things went and his experience along with a few other different like legends and other texts and previous reports so it, it it's it's definitely an interesting text on on just the perspective that we're given which is fairly limited but it it also helps to show like some of the inherent biases there which are there's a matter of language which numerous <laughs> just like the language is a whole thing and it's definitely interesting but just like 
because of that, it's because it uses a sort of unifying he, and it sort of leads to the idea that like oh, like they're not men, but the the language presses into that direction, and it is interesting that Le Guin herself like recognized that stance many years later, and was like, yeah, no, I, I, there were alternatives I could have done them, but I was like, I didn't know, I'm fine, like that's that's the process of learning, like you make you screw up, you make mistakes, and that's not an issue. That's actually how it goes. So that's definitely yeah. It was so interesting talking about this text with like my students who were like aware right of like you know uh different pronouns and like uh how people think about gender now in like the year 2020 like it's so (laughs) radically different um well it's 2021 now but i I taught this book last year And, and and the way we talk about gender now is so radically different than the way that people were talking about gender in 1969 um, which isn't to say that like Le Guin should be held to an impossible standard of perfection, especially when she had the the humility and the good graces to you know kind of look back retrospectively and talk about um, the flaws of how she approached the text. But I think if anything, it, it speaks to how much the Left Hand of Darkness was really ahead of its time, you know, yes. as a as a story investigating and trying to analyze and dissect and reimagine gender. And I think that, you know, Frank, it's always fascinating reading stories because I think that stories, unlike scientific research, unlike more like quantifiable, you know, a, a mathematical data, inspire our imaginations. And I think yes. that when we think about gender in particular, a book like this, which so ruthlessly critiques gender, I think um, has the ability to really instigate a, a thoughtful reinterpretation or, or resituationing of what it means to approach the the topic of gender, um, and, and 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 unlike something like a scientific study or like a, a deep psychological analysis could do, like there's something about literature and about fiction, and and specifically like science fiction that that's capable of conjuring these totally different worlds that I think really speaks to us reimagining and rethinking what gender is and and how we understand it in the real world. Oh, absolutely. I think that is like the main thing because it, it is a product of its time and it's connected to like what it could do or what it couldn't do. But there's just so much like because regardless of the mistakes, there is an honest and sincere approach to like rethink and like press on the question of like what the hell gender can mean, uh, what it m- means for us. Because like again, like th- this speaks directly to its time and to our time still, along with pushing those boundaries a lot. So that is, and in a way that isn't like disingenuous or that is like trying to, oh, this is what it is. It's like, well, it it is many things and it doesn't give a definite answer. And it it presses the question. And I think that's like the best stance that, that one can have and one that like literature and fiction definitely can do. That like, proposing different questions, proposing different approaches. And it may offer ideas, it may offer different solutions and and possibilities. And a lot of the time, if there is the sincerity and the humility, 
of doing that writing and doing that work in fiction, then there is this possibility of like, well, it's it's an answer and that's fine and that's great really because it's pushing beyond what it can be. So while, while as we've been saying, the whole, we we think about gender in, in a particular way that is even a lot more radical than we have here. The book itself offers a lot in what it's doing. That like it because I'm I'm deeply intrigued on how like it offers a certain angle of androgyny while working with in um, having that uh, differentiation. And while that is definitely very particular and very in a particular physiology that the book works with, it's it's uh, again rethinking these preconceived ideas of what like gender can work with and we have a particular experience or we have other experiences now than we did back then but these are still valuable and they are still a lot more recent and a lot more fresh than at times like uh, an academic work can have or not like that's like the power and the beauty of literature a lot of the time and Le Guin definitely was aware of them like I as I was talking about, like the part of my research working with her and the way she approaches her own text is incredibly fascinating. So uh, I'm gonna pull up a quick quote, which I think definitely illustrates like what it can do. And I, I mean, I completely agree, even as a sort of like a historian. And, and and like she's saying this in like '73, that like at this point. Realism is perhaps the least adequate means of understanding or portraying the incredible realities of our existence. The fantasist may be talking as seriously as any sociologist, and a good deal more directly, about human life as it is lived, and as it might be lived, and as it ought to be lived. For, after all, as great scientists have said, and as all children know, it is above all by the imagination that we achieve perception, and compassion, and hope. And I think that's just... You know, impeccable, impeccable way I agree. Of, of narrowing and, and bringing what literature can be a lot of the time and just taking what it can do. And I think that is, I mean, that's uh, one of the things that drives the left page and that drives me personally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Frank. And I think that, you know, it's well said. I, I do, though, think it's still fair to offer these critiques, right? Um, yeah. Of, of how she portrays gender you know, because they are meaningful and, and, and they can still inform our our own understanding of gender and our own kind of critical um, application of an application of an exploration of gender in, in modern times. And so, like, you know, you have this really great quote, you know, uh, from her her essay, Is Gender Necessary?, here in the notes um, that I want to be sure we highlight because it's just so good and really illustrates the humility with which she approached her own work and like the criticisms that she received. Anyway, she says, I now see it thus. Men were inclined to be satisfied with the book, The the Left Hand of Darkness, which allowed them a safe trip into androgyny and back from a conventionally male viewpoint. But many women wanted it to go further, to dare more, to explore androgyny from a woman's point of view as well as a man's. In fact, it does so in that it was written by a woman, but this is admitted directly only in the chapter The Question of Sex, the only voice of a woman in the book. Again, uh, uh, kind of interrupting her uh, her quote here. 
she does the same thing in The Dispossessed where it's like non-linear and jumps around. Every other chapter is an intercession from some point in the cultural and, and historical and political background of Gethin, of, of winter, of this planet. And so you get like spirituality and like lore. You get like notes on the reproductive cycle. You just get a whole bunch of like really fun stuff um, in the text. But the only chapter that's actually narrated by uh, a woman is, um, I think it's like chapter three or chapter four, um, the question of sex. Anyway, uh, she continues, I think women were justified in asking more courage of me and a more rigorous thinking through of implications, which is, I think, true because as you pointed out, Frank, like there is um, a tendency to rely on like he, him pronouns instead of creating like an altogether new pronoun set or you just like defaulting to they, them. And I, I admit I'm not as, uh, you know, verse on 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 queer theory as i as i probably should be but my understanding is that even back in this time people were using they them pronouns albeit like kind of like in in very small niches and pockets yeah i i think like i historically uh me neither unfortunately but i do definitely get that sense especially from some of the commentary that she does because the the text is Gender Necessary Redux, which is a version from 1987, from the original text that's from 76, yes. It's the original text with, like, interspersed comments offers. And there's one was like, I didn't think, I don't think the question of, like, the pronouns was important. And then her recent comment, I think that's very important now. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. No, it's super interesting reading the, the Redux version where it's got all of her annotations. And because like, and that's, again, I think that's the mark of a, of a true like mind is someone who is willing to do self-critique and like yeah. think back and reflect and be like willing to be like, okay, I fucked up here or I dropped the ball here or I fumbled here. There's, there's some like Einstein quote about how like really critical minds are, are always doubting themselves. And, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. It may not even be Einstein. I may be pulling that out of my ass, but <laughs> <laughs> there's, there, there is something to be said, I think for her, again, her humility and her, her approach to her own writing and how she sees these works as like living texts, which is like fucking cool. Cause like most, I feel like most authors have this very, um, authoritative view uh which i make sense like they're the author like they created it like it's not i don't f necessarily fault them for this but she's like willing to like kind of go back and, and tweak and you know rethink and respeculate and i think that that's really a really neat way to approach writing especially as someone who you know studies literature writes frequently yeah it's it's just a really really cool kind of approach to thinking about one's own work yeah, like it's this, this intellectual honesty, really, to like, yeah, this is what I did, and like, now I I would do it differently. I would do it really differently, but doesn't mean that like, oh, like it should. And I think that's the thing that it doesn't mean that oh, this this is bad. No, like it has mistakes as a, a book from if she wrote it differently in or in eighty four, whatever, like. It would have other mistakes and out of other things and and so on like that's <laughs> learning is a constant process of fucking up again in different ways uh. <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> well said. <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I mean, I think that like, you know, obviously uh, the, the topic and the theme of gender uh, in this book has been discussed, you know, ad nauseum and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll circle back to it. Yeah. Um, but do you want to explore some of the other like major things? Like I know oh, yeah. you mentioned the Ecumen Council and, and talking about how they were analogous to the UN. And I think that that is... Is true in in some sense, in so far as they they <laughs> say what you will about the UN, and I know this is like a right wing talking point, but the but I'm gonna say it anyways. Like the UN doesn't have a lot of actual power, right? Nope. And in some ways, like the Ecumen Council is very much like that too. You know, it doesn't really have a lot of power. But then again, it's not really interested in exercising power, and that yeah. I think is what's really fascinating about the Ecumen Council. This this uh, intergalactic association of worlds and peoples is that they're not interested in exercising power over each other. They're interested in communication because communication, as you'll recall from our discussion on the dispossessed, is is absolutely crucial to the Ansible. And and, and what is it that Genliai is is utilizing in <laughs> order to relay information back to the Ecumen? But an Ansible, right? Like that's how he communicates uh, back with the Ecumen. And so, to me, I I read the Ecumen Council as, and and again, <laughs> my my biases come through here, but as a sort of um, proto anarchic, like de- like decentralized confederation, right? Hmm. Not 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 as much as like a UN, but like as a confederation of of worlds and planets and peoples who are interested in communicating with each other and sharing information and sharing scientific exploration and cultural difference, but not trying to dominate or territorialize or do do an imperialism. They're, they're <laughs> more interested in trying to understand each other and to communicate with each other. And that to me speaks to a sort of, like I said, like a decentralized internationalism or intergalactic internationalism. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know how to correctly phrase it, but it's, it's so, it's such an interesting thing to consider. And it, it's very, uh, it's very much like the kind of like a Star Trek approach. Yeah. No, it's it's super interesting. And I, I like that read. I like that read a lot more because uh, as someone who has done like their fair share of UN simulations, yeah, the, the UN doesn't do, doesn't have much power or any. So, you know, <laughs> fucking do. But yeah, I, <laughs> especially in regards to like how... The, again, the, this is referred various times in the book, and I really enjoy them, how they send one person. They send just one person. And like that person's in a pretty precarious and dangerous position, but it is one person. And they can decide to like pull back and then return, but it's just one person. And that, the power and the potential that I can have of like just... Being a single emissary, not being an invasion force, not being an army, not being like even a delegation or something, or, or being a spy or whatever—it's just it's literally one person. And that approach, that patient approach—I think that's something that we refer to as the acumen a, a lot of the time. That's like they're patient in their approach, in the time, in the communication, which implies a lot of like on this possibility of trust and communication which it takes time it takes time to establish any sort of bond and i think that 
is something really interesting. I'm sorry, I, I'm slightly lost in thought, but I really do enjoy how well, we don't get a clear picture of the ecumen or what they do, this potential of communication and exchange, which is works its, its damn hardest to not be threatening, to not be imposing in any way, is so interesting. Like, that's why there's just one person beforehand who is literally scouting party to like, so this is this planet, this is their main settlements, this is their culture in broad strokes. And then they send one person to actually make that contact. It is definitely like to understand and taking the commitment to like, to approach like, this is where I'm from. And you can believe me, you cannot, I can try and prove it best I can, but like, this is me. And this is who I represent. And it's really interesting. I This is going to come up in a few months for another book that I've been reading. But I've recently read a short novella, a sci-fi novella, which is really interesting. Which is called To Be Taught a Fortunate by Becky Chambers. And in it there is an, uh, an approach to, like space exploration that like tries to decenter from humanity and like a non-threatening, non-intrusive, non-invasive approach. And the question of, oh, but how can we observe while not being, while not interfering? And, like, in a sense, the, well, that is a question there, and leans more towards, like, an observance that avoids all type of interference. In this, when there's a, a different culture, like, the honesty and forthcoming of, like, here am I, and here's who... I represent, and this is what we're trying to do, like this honest and upfront approach I think reflects a lot of like what the ecumen is trying to do, which is not like to deceive or to trick or to mislead, but to communicate in an honest uh, a way as possible. And in that regard, I think you're absolutely right yeah. in that yeah. idea. Yeah, very true. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, Frank. And I, can you imagine how terrifying it would be to like be the person who has to go like make a connection with people for the very first time? So much, like, because you put yourself on like it's such high risk. It's like anything could happen to me. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, you could get killed by the the local population you could die from exposure your spaceship could you know malfunction there's so many ways <laughs> that could go awry <laughs> which is hilarious but you know i think you're you're on to something too with the idea of how in many ways the left hand of darkness prefigured the dispossessed because like they come empty-handed you know yes uh they they don't come with anything um the only the only thing that he has to communicate back with uh, his, his the, the ecumen is the ansible. That's it. <laughs> you know, he he literally comes to the people of um, Carhide empty-handed, um, which I think is like both very beautiful, but also like ties in this um, larger this this larger universe uh, that Le Guin is is constructing in the Hanish cycle. But yeah, I, I think that uh, speaking of Carhide, there's also like some something interesting to be said about like the way that Le Guin approaches 
these different civilizations from like a kind of anthropological view and and yeah. in some of the analogies that she draws <laughs> it, it's very clear <laughs> it's very clear and and you can love this or hate this uh but it's very clear that uh Ursula Gay Le Guin had more than a few criticisms of the USSR <laughs> especially as <laughs> the uh the, the the closest analogy in both uh, the dispossessed and in the left hand of darkness are both villainous. <laughs> so like there's 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 something to be said for that. I, I definitely like that. Uh, again, like in the analogies to like our societies, like the common point is the sort of analog to the USSR. So right. you know, and in this one, it's even more present than in the dispossessed. Where in the dispossessed, like it's there, but it's a lot more in the background. Like it exists, but it's not like at the forefront. It's not like the character that we follow doesn't literally go there. Doesn't be is it doesn't exist there. So there's definitely something to be said about her approach to it then. But here is like at definitely at the forefront. Like this is. <laughs> this is the reference. This is the reference we're talking about, and it's, I think, fairly obvious. I, I will mention as an aside because I this boggled my mind how you could possibly have that reading, but that apparently someone reading the Dispossessed saw in uh, Anaris an analog to the USSR, and I was like, wait, what? Uh, okay, sure, but anyway. <laughs> She works in analogies a lot of the time, and Carhide, in not being like a specific sort of feudal monarchy that we're talking about, can be a lot more interesting. And Orgoring, again, sorry for the pronunciation, it, as this USSR analog definitely reflects a lot of the views of the time and lots of de- very fair and sensible criticism of it, and how. I was seen especially from the US at that time. Yeah. But it is, it's an interesting approach to like counteract both like a feudal monarchy and bureaucratic USSR like state. Uh, that's definitely interesting. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Frank, I wanted to ask you too about mm-hmm. the, the spirituality in this book because, you know, I, I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, Ursula K. Le Guin, I wouldn't necessarily call her uh, a spiritual person, but she was very interested in the Tao Te Ching. Yes. Um, and in Taoism, uh, you know, she was raised in like a Taoist household. And so spirituality definitely suffuses her work. And so I was, uh, I was curious uh, if you had any thoughts on kind of how she fuses spirituality and scientific understanding within this text. Because it's something that, that fascinates me about like, these different like bases of of knowledge and, and how spirituality can can make knowledge and how you know how science can make knowledge um, mm-hmm. because like you know me being uh, a relatively secular human being I'm still fascinated by this fusion and and I think that uh, so often people view it as you know a uh, a dichotomy where you're either spiritual or mystical or you're scientific. Um, and I think that more and more as I've gotten older and, you know, considered things from multiple perspectives, I think that there are, there's a dialectical synthesis here that she's, she's kind of playing with in this text between science and spirituality. And I was wondering if you had any, 
any thoughts on on how that plays out in the text? Oh, a, a few at least. I guess it's not a question that because for the longest time it's the issue for me with my own spirituality as like Catholic Christian and communist, which is uh, well, it, it was harder to think of back then, but like learning of like liberation theology and these various other possibilities and traditions has allowed me to like push those things together in interesting and again unexpected ways myself but it's been possible so this approach to like knowledge and understanding and effectively the philosophical question of like how do we produce knowledge how do we approach knowledge and science is definitely one that this book pushed me and is pushing me to to answer and and to try to think about at least um, now that I have the previous one more or less like at least aligned in myself and not as like not as a contradiction which I never felt that it was but like understanding that like no there is no contradiction or there needs to be no contradiction regardless so for me the matter of like (laughs) yes she is you're absolutely correct, and like she says that multiple times in other texts, like her connection to Eastern theology and all of these different practices. But I do, I do see, or, or like at least uh, again a possible analog of that, like that, like the Socratic maxim of like, I know that I know nothing. That ignorance and that humility to approach knowledge, any type of knowledge, really, like that of how do you build that, how you go about trying to understand and understanding that, like, I, I, I think it definitely circles back to that this spiritual connection to knowledge is seen in her own intellectual approach of, like, going back and understanding one's mistakes and trying to be honest and sincere about your work, which is this one that of unknowing, of ignorance, and not as a bad thing, because it's not an ignorance that is produced, it is understanding an ignorance that is fact, that it exists, because it it does. Like, there's the sum of knowledge that we don't know will forever outweigh the knowledge we do know. And that's just a part of human experience and creating and learning. And there's this this conversation that and it's one of my definitely one of my favorite chapters which is when again is with this sort of spiritual group which is the handara again like think about pronunciation but in it he he has a, a wide variety of conversations with them and they have a sort of process and power of prophecy where they can answer certain question in and in true like fairy tale fashion like they will answer only the question. So, like, how or what, like, it's intrinsically dependent on how you ask that question. And there are questions that cannot be asked because they will incur in harm to those spiritually inclined to ask them. And that notion is really interesting. There are questions that have no definite answer because it's always, like, a clear answer, even as simple or as empty as it might be. And again, he asks a question of, like, if his mission will be successful. And he goes, yes. And he 
afterwards and thinking about it, it's like that it was the wrong question to ask. Like that, that didn't matter that question. And the conversation that is the like the closing statement of that chapter is yes, there's really only one question that can be answered, Henry, and we already know the answer. The only thing that makes life possible is permanent, intolerable uncertainty, not knowing what comes next. And I think to consider that as an approach to like to knowledge, to building, creating that scientific knowledge, really, it is one of like, we can create hypotheses, we can investigate, we can learn, we can create, we can consider, we can imagine. Again, the question of imagination, I think it's key here too. We don't effectively know. We can't like attest with like the utmost certainty or the absolute, the matter of absolute truth. It's one is clearly dismissed like this and that value of, uh, which comes up various times, like nusus, uh, that it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because it is, I think it, it definitely understands knowledge and scientific knowledge especially as something that changes, as something that is not fixed, that is not definite and that is not permanent. It can last longer or shorter and that's like a, a more sincere and honest approach to like scientific paradigms of, you know, this is the prevailing view and prevailing understanding of it and this upholds and sustains and makes sense given X, Y, Z and a, a list of different points, counterpoints and various evidences. But it is not absolute. And I think that definitely helps to establish and understand this, both the humility to time, to the universe, and while the thing, the, this does not show up in the text, to like, to ecology, to ecosystems, to other forms of life, it is also one that like, understands that the creation of our knowledge and our approach to the world and to ourselves is one that will be forever changing and will be forever filled of things that we do not know and some we won't know uh, some we might and some we'll never know but that is not a problem i think this approach to an ignorance that will not be solved but that will be occasionally shown or occasionally changing is interesting than like the absolute truth absolute light right I feel silly that I didn't realize the obvious enlightenment metaphor where which is the one that is shown by the Orgorings, mm -hmm. which is this one of this all-seeing eye, this absolute light, and the other one is a sort of looking at this darkness and this ignorance, which is <laughs> definitely a pressing question and, and there was at the time, but it still is now. Moving beyond or a more critical perspective against this enlightenment narrative of like this absolute knowledge and absolute truth, which is one that is very dear to me, especially it's like questioning these notions of progress and of this of these absolutes. So, <laughs> I, I'm sorry if I've been rambling a bit. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think you're. I think you're really onto something there, and it's one of the things that really appeals to me about the book. And you know, when I. <clears throat> When I read this with my students, I had them also read Donna Haraway's essay, Situated Knowledges, um, mm. The Science Question in Feminism. And uh, essentially that text in that, in, that, in that essay, Donna Haraway essentially argues that science heretofore, and she was writing it, I believe, in the 80s. You know, she says that science heretofore has been 
an incredibly patriarchal and masculinist kind of approach to, to knowledge making. Um, she says that science is the eye that fucks the world, which is like, <laughs> what a fucking killer quote. Um, but that science essentially is concerned oftentimes with trying to make uh, sweeping, dramatic generalizations and statements as, like you said, as absolute truth, as as facts, right? Yeah. And what, what feminism and what spirituality and what all of these other uh, bases of knowledge making do is they encourage us rather to think about knowledge as something that is made as ignorance as something that is generative and as uh, unknowing as just as important, if not more important than knowing. And I think that uh, that's all throughout this book. I mean, the, the, the book is called The Left Hand of Darkness, and so much of it <laughs> is about Ginley Eye's like unknowingness about, about what's going to happen to him about the people um, who inhabit Gethin, and really about like what will be the future of this project that, that he's embarking on. You know, is his you know humble, tiny life going to make a difference? Is it going to be the change that that invites Gethin into this larger council of of, of intergalactic worlds? And I think that uh, if we think about science as, as not being an absolute but being as a a partial estimation or our best guess um, I think that's such a more healthy way of thinking about science and, and in many ways I think it's more honest to the scientific method you know the scientific yeah. method is is all about um, critical inquiry is all about trying to dismantle and rethink and reshape and be critical of knowledge that we have created and so i think that um it's 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 such a shame that we don't teach science in that manner to young people yeah. right we don't teach it as uh as what marx would call the ruthless critique of all that exists <laughs> rather it's it's this very you know it's this very liberal approach to like i believe in the science you know like it's you know you you hear people like uh like joe biden being like we believe in the science and then they turn around and uh you know do fracked gas and you know try to drill oil pipelines you know the the idea of believing in science is just another belief system and and if we really think about science as one tool for understanding our place in the world and, and trying to analyze and dissect it, I think it's a it's a much more enriching place to be. And and again, like you know, if I, it, it's it's funny that I'm saying all of this because <laughs> if if someone had said the same thing to me even five years ago, I would recoil and be like, no, that's not true. Science is this blah blah blah. You don't need you know, I'd be yeah. a, I'd be an ass hat about it. But it's so interesting thinking about how we as people can shift and change our views and perspectives, and how I think this book does such an excellent job of really reveling and and, and finding joy in uncertainty, um, which I think is a very existential approach. Um, and it's one that I don't think many people are comfortable with because yeah. it's, it's scary not knowing, you know? And, and I think that that's a, a, a fair response. Like it does feel like being in, in darkness to, to, to kind of, you know, return to that proverb that Ursula K. Le Guin writes in, in the book. But I think that there is a joy there as well, a, a freedom that comes from being unshackled to like the certainty of knowledge and being able to 
fluctuate and move to different ways of knowing, different ways of being, different ways of experimenting with our, our understanding of the world. If not uh, an absolute truth, then a, a truth that makes sense and a truth that can speak to us in a, in a meaningful and a concrete way. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it's just as a slight, it's a slight tangent, but I think it makes sense to, to our whole point that like, for a long time I've been thinking about the matter, because like, I'm a historian by, by trade, and the question of like, oh, is history, is historical work like a scientific? Can it be scientific? And like, yes, for those exact reasons. Because the arguments have historically been that, like, oh, but it's interpretive that it relates to, like, different views and peoples and that you can't construct, like, a stable, impartial narrative as if that's even possible in, the, in any of the other sciences. <laughs> so, in a sense, like, there's, um, there's a greater deal of honesty in understanding, especially historical work, but at the end of the day, all other sciences, that they take... A particular approach in time and space. I am always intrigued and fascinated by these sort of unsolvable tensions of like, in my case, that investigating the past and looking at different times by trying to understand them in their own time, but aware that I'm in my present. Because if I forget that I wear these goggles of, or these glasses of the present, I, then I'm living the past. Then I'm, I'm not doing th this bridge. I'm not doing this connection. And if I don't approach this time on its own, then I'm literally not not investigating. Then I'm just like <laughs> evaluating from the present, and I'm not building this connection. I'm not understanding its own time. I'm, I'm, all, I'm outside it fully. So this tension, which one does not solve, one handles, one deals with. And that is present in sciences. And like the fact that we cannot establish absolute truths in history or in any of the other hard sciences, so to speak, is not a problem. That is actually just the process. It is a process. It's not, there's no real end point to it. It is this, and I'm going to say a, <laughs> a contentious word, but not in the contentious sense, but this revisionism of like going back and under, understanding anew, reinterpreting is not a bad thing. Like that's just the way this science is produced, no matter the field, that it builds and challenges past and present ideas in order to understand and build, build something new. And it's definitely something that's afforded when we understand like this darkness and not just like, oh, we're not establishing like beacons or abs these absolute structures that will last. They'll last a while, but eventually they will crumble <laughs> on the nature that they are. And to simply, like, believe is... Well, that's, <laughs> that's hollow at the end of the day, because it, co it contradicts the process in itself. It's, it, it's interesting to, to go back on, on this question of process, but I think it's relevant, uh, considering the, the, the conversation we had on the dispossessed. But this scientific discovery, creation, and imagination is one that is driven by, the, by a process, by oh, what can be, what is, what isn't, and how these things change. So, 
it's really the question that the questions rather that were posed by this facing of ignorance in the text can be really constructive not in a way that like in a way that is sincere really that is sincere to how science can be produced and in a way that is aware of its own contradictions and its own limitations that it's humble at the end of the day i think you're you're absolutely right frank and it's 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 one of the reasons why I have bristled at even the jokes of like the immortal science of of a a certain social theory. It's not an immortal science. It is if it it, especially if it's scientific. That is a paradox, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the whole point is that it it, that we should be constantly critiquing and rethinking and reimagining and reinterpreting our our worldviews, our perspectives, our ideologies, um, our failed experiments and our successful experiments and trying to synthesize and um, create new connections. And I think that there's there's definitely a lot of, of fertile ground um, for that sort of thinking when we just simply like let go and admit that uh, the only thing that we know for certain is that we know nothing for certain at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. As you said, that's liberating. That opens up so many new doors to focus on these, on the idea of these fixed structures or these immortal things is, at the end of the day, it's counterproductive to the way that these things have been done, which is trial and error, which is contradiction, which is opposition, which is conflict, which is change. And embracing the possibility of that change is what allows, well, this production, reproduction, and creation in a a varied and more interesting way, I think. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Well, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, the relationship between Estrovin and and, and Genli Ai, because I think it's one of the tensions in the book that is so fucking fascinating. Yes. And and how uh, these characters develop, how their relationship blossoms, it, it, it is so touching and so like poignant and like every time i go back and reread this book uh i can't help but like weep in its in its final moments because of the tragedy that unfolds but like it's fascinating that like estrovin is the vehicle through which ginley learns to love the planet of gethin and learns to uh, understand the people of Gethin, right? Um, it, there's this tension between the macro of the political and the social and the cultural being this thing that Genli Ai is looking at um, through this like very anthropological lens, mm-hmm. and then it becomes personalized through the character of Estrovin. Um, yes, and and the relationship that develops between Genli and Estrovin. Um, you know, it's it's Estrovin who comes and saves Genli when he is imprisoned in Orgorain. It's it's uh, Estrovin who um, first tells Ginley that he is, you know, under attack. And yet Ginley is the one who is always skeptical of Estrovin because of his <laughs> his his chauvinism, because of his misogyny, because of his um, sort of patriarchal conceptions of, of what gender is and his inability to nail Estrovin down as uh, as male or female, right? Um, mm-hmm. Ginley is not able to encode or put Estrovin into a box, which I think um, speaks to this larger conversation that we're just having about yeah. like 
wanting to have that certainty, right? Well, Gimli doesn't, is not afforded much certainty on, on the planet of Gethin, um, regardless of whether it comes to gender or, or uh, larger social and political mores. It, there is no real certainty in this text, and it's one of the things that I, I love about it so much is that it is so very open to interpretation and, and, and understanding and the, the, the way that Estrovin allows Ginley to come to terms with with gender, but also to come to terms with the peoples of the planet itself are are so beautiful. And there's uh, there are few like there are few moments in literature that are as poignant and touching as the very very small, almost like uh, almost so fast that you wouldn't notice it, like like scene where uh, Estrovan and Genli like make love in this text. Like it's such a powerful moment, and yet it's so small, and yet it's really the fulcrum about which the entire text really swings because it allows Genli to to move from anthropological observer to someone who is like deeply invested on a personal level in this project of inviting Gethin into the Ecumen Council. Yes. And I think that's the, is, you put it perfectly, like, that's the way where he, he passes from, like, just observer to, like, someone who is effectively um, intervening in, in smaller or larger ways. But, like, he is there as an outsider, but he is inside, he is invested, and he is changing things, regardless of how large or how small. Ultimately, he's proposing a colossal change, but a lot of the text he sees, and as you put it quite accurately, that he sees himself as an observer, as an outsider, as someone who is not understanding, who cannot encode these people for him the way that he is familiar, which is a sort of like a binary. And at this final, this final section of of the novel, we, we do have these things sort of coming apart for him, as he's like confronted, literally face to face with this, that none of that really matters, and if that even made sense in the first place. And as these things sort of crumble for him, it allows him to fully engage with like this, uh, this is why I'm here, and allows him to go beyond what is familiar into this unknown, really, into this darkness. And in a way that is, at the end of the day, these experiences are always deeply changing if we, are, if we allow ourselves to, to be open to them. And that's what happens to Genli as at this beautiful, just, it's rough, it's difficult, and it's beautiful, and, 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 the, and at the end, painful journey of this uh, through the ice as they're together and exchanging and learning and experiencing together in their differences. And in a way, especially for, for Genli, in his humility, to finally allow himself to like go beyond what he was trying to do the entire book, which, frankly, <laughs> quite frustrating um, and a bit very annoying to read. That's like trying to, oh, but he's not particularly male, or he's not particularly female, or oh, he's uh, being more female here, but, you know, and not just on Estrovan, but on a wide variety of characters. And at that point, he's like, he's he's neither, and he's both, and it doesn't matter. Um, 
And that's excellent. <laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's so fascinating, <laughs> right, that it's like he's both and he's neither and it doesn't matter. It's all of those things simultaneously, which is like super confusing, <laughs> like especially if you haven't <laughs> read the text. And yet it, 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 it synthesizes so brilliantly uh, in, in those moments and in that, those chapters where Gimli and, and Estrovin are, are out on the ice and, and the, the way that they connect with one another is, is just super, super, super powerful. And it, and it speaks, I think, to a, a transformative understanding of larger ramifications that Gimli hadn't considered because I think that the text is intentional about making... <laughs> making Gidley a, a bit of a chauvinistic pig oh, definitely. <laughs> in definitely. the beginning of the, of the book because it's supposed to indict the reader, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, Ursula K. Le Guin is, I think, very intentional about her audience. You know, she's writing to an audience that she's assuming is largely cisgendered, largely, like, white and, and largely male at this point in time, right? Mm-hmm. And she's inviting them to indict their own assumptions about gender and about masculinity and about the, you know, pureness uh, of, of, of science, right? And, like, hard science fiction was, like, super big at this time. Like, the, you know, really rich, like, this is science fiction with an <laughs> emphasis on the science part. And she's definitely indicting all of that in this book and complicating it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, it won a Hugo Award. I think it's one of the reasons why it's such a, a powerful and impactful text is because it's not only a critique of all of these, like, larger ideas of, of um, certainty, of, of rationality, of science, and of, of masculinity, but it's also, in many ways, a, a critique of science fiction I- I itself, um, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> like, you know, yes. like that's yet another level upon which, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin's genius is, is uh, playing out in this text, is that it's a critique of how science fiction looked at the question of gender, looked at the question of science, looked at the question of spirituality, um, and, and, and allowed it to kind of push beyond these very myopic understandings of masculinity and of, of the rigidity of science, but, but reclaimed a more authentic and feminist vision of of what it means to actually engage in scientific inquiry, what it means to ask difficult questions and engage in ruthless critique, and also what it means to uh, fuse different ways of, of making and, and understanding knowledge. Yes. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Because what she does here, and she does in different ways in Dispossessed, is questioning, in, in both cases, science fiction, and in the other one also utopian uh, fiction and like turning it in its head on how it's been done a lot of the time previously and like showing so this is what this can do like so let's do it let's do it differently let's do it in other ways let's use this with all the potential that it has to question our own reality and to imagine something new and that's like i think that's the absolute beauty of it of like and I go back to the quote I, I gave from her earlier, that it's like, it's hope. And especially recently, for me, it's been so crucial to everything I've been doing. That like, the way we operate and engage in different ways and with different things, as critique and critique, in that, as like a 
constructive process, not in like, oh, the constructive critique, yes, but what that means, uh, and I'm directly pulling from something I was listening to before we recorded, which was one of the latest Horror Vanguard episodes, on critique as it builds something, as it builds a different understanding or greater understandings of something. It's not just a reaction, but it is a process of building as well. And I think that's what what both of us do in our various works and what we're doing now with this text, that it's like, this is what it does, this is what it can do, this is what it leads us, and this is what it helps us do. These are things that intend, and these are things that it did not. Uh, these are limitations, and these are not. But it's what it's pushing uh, beyond, really. And in the way that we can, with this book, for example, like, go beyond like simple assumptions or simple ideas of like gender of spirituality of science of communication of experience really it's so interesting i i have separated a quote um from estrevan on genli and i think it it illustrates a lot of like how genli's behavior is and it does not and not justifying it but understanding it in a way that like it makes sense to how Genli even unbuilds a lot of that knowledge. Here it is. There is an innocence in him that I have found merely foreign and foolish. In another moment, that seeming innocence reveals a discipline of knowledge and the largeness of purpose that awes me. Through him speaks a shrewd and, a, and magnanimous people, a people who have woven together into one wisdom a profound, old, terrible, and unimaginably various experience of life. But he himself is young, impatient, inexperienced. He stands higher than we stand, seeing wider. But he is himself only the height of a man. And I think as a way to widen all that we've been talking about, we are two men (laughs) right here, right now. But we are constantly in our own ways pushing beyond those to other understandings, to other perspectives, to other ideas and other possibilities, and to make these connections to other peoples, other histories, other writings, other literatures. And it is this process, it is this wider idea of like what things can be, what can we be, and what can learning be what can knowledge be what can science be what can spirituality be so it it is hope it is imagination and while this particular book narrows a few points even going quite deeply into them on spirituality and gender and so on it allows us so much more and it's still constantly relevant constantly interesting constantly fun and constantly touching and yeah it's it's incredible, it's really interesting, and it's great to... Again, I, I go back to this because I think in a lot of these discussions that I have, be it with you or with so many other guests, about what I have been doing and what the left page is supposed to do, which is to build and expand and produce different connections with these various texts. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. That is... It is about widening and about opening up these different ideas and possibilities that are to stop and think and talk about them. And like, hmm, this is interesting, or 
hmm, this isn't, or, or what can this be, or what can, it shouldn't. So, yes, I, yeah, a, a book like this that opens so many possibilities and doors in such touching and beautiful ways is truly, ah, truly an amazing read. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's a, a beautiful and, and tender note to, to maybe wrap up on. What do you think? Definitely, I I agree. It's we've the, the, there was, there's been so much more that we could expand and go into, but I think in order to you know like drive the points that we've been making home and make it, you know, these are questions that we'll still be thinking of that it will still show up in our various projects and discussions. Oh, for sure. 100 percent yeah i don't think we're gonna settle anything here today frank unfortunately (laughs) or perhaps fortunately you know like maybe that's a good thing maybe it is actually a good thing that we're just asking more (laughs) more questions (laughs) oh absolutely and i think this is a good point to end on on like so many new doors that this book opened and continues to open for us and i think yeah that's that's what always a good thing to do like to go to a text, to go to a book, to go to a story, and like, what can this open? And what does it open? And how how can we have it open? And yeah, this this is beautiful. So yeah, yeah, I think we, we can definitely sort of like wrap up here. So where can people find you and support you, my friend? Uh, well, uh, people can check out Coffee with Comrades by going to www.coffeewithcomrades.com. Uh, we are a podcast uh, that discusses theory and events and cultural criticism and direct action um, through a radical lens. Um, we're available in any podcatching you know app of your choice. Uh, you can also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash coffee with comrades. Um, I also recently joined a podcast called Macabre Media Podcast, uh, which is hilarious. Um, and so, you know, fans of, of your show who are interested in cultural criticism might like Macabre Media Podcast, which, again, you can find anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, people who are fans of your show who are interested in the more political um, theory and and uh, action uh, might be more interested in Coffee with Comrades, or people might dig both, which would be also awesome. But yeah, uh, for folks who are listening to this episode in the Coffee with Comrades feed, Frank, where can people check out Left Page Pod? Yeah, you you can find us on well wherever podcasts can reach you at uh, leftpage.libsyn.com, and I'm constantly on Twitter <laughs> at Left Page Pod, so you can find me there. Uh, usually retweeting other comments work and podcasts and some of my own ideas along with we have a patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page where we have some other like texts that i write on either my own research or other texts that wouldn't necessarily show up as an episode but they're still worth talking about or that i, I may even talk about at some point who knows but it's another way that uh, I'm producing and trying to connect with this knowledge regarding literature, reading, and writing, and along with the Poetry Club, where we delve into a poem for a bit, and it's weird and fun and interesting. So definitely check us out there too. But And all the links will surely be in our descriptions. And definitely do check out Coffee with Comments. Pearson does incredible work and really happy and 
honor to be able to collab and chat with you again like this. It's so much fun. And do yeah. check out Macabre Media Pod. They're, they're really fun, and this new season is being really interesting, too. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much, comrade. I appreciate the kind words. Um, we're going to have to do this again sometime in the near future Absolutely. and talk about another uh, another book in the heinous cycle. <laughs> we're going to eventually, <laughs> somewhere down the line, we'll get through all of them. But there's a whole fucking bunch of them, so maybe not. <laughs> Only time will tell. I suppose that's true. Uh, and and uh, I guess if... Uh, if it's true that True Journey is returned, then we'll probably keep coming back to this, <laughs> this series of books again and again and again. I love that.